Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Well, hello to our listeners, Stan and J.P. Welcome. Good to be back. Great to be together again. Today, we are discussing abortion. And while we are going to be treating this subject in the realm of moral philosophy, we want to acknowledge that issues relating to abortion are incredibly complex and sometimes deeply painful for those who have been impacted directly or indirectly. Uh, We want to just put it in your court listener, whether this is a conversation that you feel up for listening to and participating in as we will be um, talking pretty specifically as much as we can. I'm going to start us off by giving the medical definition of abortion and then um, making some key distinctions there that are going to be helpful as we walk through this conversation. So the medical definition of abortion, according to a medical textbook, we'd be happy to link in the show notes. As always, anything that we reference, we do our best to get into the show notes. And if there is ever something that you think would be helpful for us to know about or a resource that you think would fit well into these episodes, please give us an email. We would be thrilled to hear from you. So the medical definition of abortion In medicine, an abortion is a loss of pregnancy due to the premature exit of products of conception from the uterus due to any cause. An abortion may occur spontaneously, termed a miscarriage, or may be medically induced. I understand there that the phrase products of conception may seem very inhumane, but it was written to encompass a blighted ovum or um, sometimes called an anembryotic pregnancy. So that's when a fertilized egg implants in the uterus, but does not develop into an embryo. Um, This is pretty common and sometimes requires medical assistance for removal. But here we want to be very careful to distinguish between the death of a baby due to factors that are induced artificially and the cessation of life due to factors that are not induced artificially. We will be referring to the former as an abortion and the latter as a miscarriage or stillbirth based on gestational age. Most experts make that distinction in the last 30 years, but some still don't. And um, even in medical literature and when reporters are talking about this issue or when they're talking with doctors, this is a cause of a lot of confusion. So we wanna make sure that We are distinguishing that when we are talking about an abortion in this episode, we will be talking about a death of a baby due to factors that are induced artificially. So with that said, we're going to kind of get into our topic. Um, Can one of you please give us a quick summary of what we mean when we say morally relevant sense or field of moral philosophy? Moral philosophy is the, the philosophical study of issues surrounding the moral life, uh, particular moral cases, uh, developing systems of ethics and morality like virtue ethics or utilitarianism or relativism, Um, asking what are called meta-ethical questions like uh, do moral statements just express feelings? Or are they statements that in principle could be true or false? That would be a meta-ethics. So so to summarize then, moral philosophy is simply the study of various aspects of what we would call moral life uh, from a philosophical 
perspective, meaning it doesn't borrow from theology. Now, what a Christian theologian would do would be to take teachings of Scripture and try to find uh, independent arguments for those teachings that do not presuppose the authority of the biblical text in making those arguments. Remember, there's a difference between arguing for something philosophically and preaching what Christians believe about something. The latter, you should go straight forward to Scripture without apology. Regarding the former, you may borrow from Scripture, but you want to try to find independent reasons, like Paul did in Acts 17, for God's existence. That's very helpful, JP. Thanks. So, what is the the underlying issue here when we're talking about moral philosophy as it relates to abortion? Stan, you want to take us on this this journey? Yes, and like every other case, I think uh, it's hard to divorce ethics from metaphysics, what's real, and epistemology, what we can know. And this is a clear case of that, where underlying this discussion is an issue of metaphysics, namely, what is the nature of that thing? Uh, Is it a uh, a person, a baby, as you referred to earlier? Is it fetal tissue, uh, just matter? Uh, And so once that question is answered, then all the dominoes fall. So much follows from that. And unfortunately, in this debate and public conversation, that distinction's really talked about. And so there's a lot of talking past one another as we try to engage on these issues. Mm. Um, let, let me just give you an example. Let's say I just bought a drone, one of these things you can use for aerial photography. And so I'm going to be flying it around my yard and taking some photos of my house. Well, let's say I'm out flying my drone and I landed on the roof because I'm not very good at it yet, right? Well, um, we're talking. I say, yeah, I got a drone last week. Uh, didn't do real well first time out. Uh, it's still on the roof. Haven't had a chance to get up there and get it. You know, you, you think, well, that's maybe not taking care of your stuff really well, but no big deal. But, you know, if, if I made the same claim about my son, you know, I was out playing with Ryan in the yard last week, threw him up on the roof. Eh, I'm going to get him next week if I get a chance to get a ladder out. You'd have a real problem with that, right? Because of the nature of the thing, the nature of a drone uh, is very different than the nature of a son, a person. Mm -hmm. And so that's where ethics and metaphysics intersect right off the bat in this conversation. I think this is so important to keep in mind. And what follows from Stan's point about the fundamental issue being, what is the nature of the thing in the womb? Because what follows from that will be then, what exactly is an act of abortion? Mm -hmm. Is it the removal of the products of conception, whatever that may be? Is it a removal of a part of a woman's body? Is it a removal of a cluster of cells? Is it a removal of a potential person, not a person yet, but potential person? Or is it a full-blown human person's life with potential? So that's the fundamental question. Now, what's important to keep in mind is a statement Aristotle made, and that is that a subject matter has a proper ordering of questions you need to go through to understand that subject matter appropriately. There will be certain questions that are fundamental. Other questions will be subsequent because they presuppose answers to the fundamental question. 
Now, this is why it is absolutely crucial for the public to discuss this issue in a thoughtful, calm, intelligent way and not discuss it, quote unquote, in a highly emotional charged way because that fuzzies the mind and allows people to get away with making secondary issues the fundamental issues. And that distorts our ability to get at the truth of the matter if that's what we're interested in. Now, it may not be, but you can only have civil conversations with people who really are willing to say, I think the truth of what this issue is matters. And so I'm going to I'm going to engage in a dialogue or debate. But people who don't care about the truth, they they reside in little slogans or uh, just emotional slurs. Uh, the people who passed that law against abortion were all men. You know, no wonder they did that. Uh, something like that. So this is an important point Stan's making. Mm-hmm. The nature of what it is that is being aborted. Yes. Yeah. And notice that makes so many other things irrelevant. Uh, if it's a person, you know, size, uh, if it's a person, doesn't matter how big or small it is. You know, if it's a very small embryo in a womb or a full grown man, it's still a person, right? Capacities being expressed are not relevant. The fact that uh, an embryo or a, a baby in the second month is not able to express itself with language is irrelevant uh, if it's actually a person. So uh, a lot of things follow from what the nature of the thing we're discussing actually is. If we treat inanimate objects like means to ends, they don't have rights. They're only of instrumental value. They're valuable in as far as they give us pleasure or allow us to reach other ends we have, right? So like my drone to have fun or take aerial photos. So if actually this is just fetal tissue, it's it's an inanimate object, it's not a person, then a woman has a full right to do with, with it what she wants, like any other possession she might have. And if it is an animate object, <laughs> if it is animated, if there is a soul, if it's actually a person, that requires treating it as an end in itself. Uh, regardless of all of the differences of size, capacities, et cetera, et cetera. It's got inalienable rights. Uh, it's got intrinsic values. Again, those are all the dominoes that start to fall once you answer that fundamental question, what is this? Greg Kokel has a great little story that he uses to focus that fundamental question. And so he says, suppose that there's a woman at the sink and she's washing dishes. She has two sons, one's five, and the other one's a two-year-old. And the five-year-old comes up behind her and the five-year-old says, mommy, can I kill it? Well, what's the woman supposed to say? (laughs) Well, the answer depends on what the it is. If it's a a black widow spider, uh, yeah. (laughs) Um, If it's, it's, let's just say, a rat that got in the house, yeah. If it's it's your pet dog, uh, no. And if it's my little brother... Uh, Absolutely not. So the question of whether or not I should kill it depends on the it. That same point is about the right to choose. There There is no such thing 
as a right to choose, not even a legal right to choose, because the right to choose is like the statement, the lamp is to the left of. Is the lamp to the left of or is it not? Well, that's not a complete thought. I, it, 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 you can't, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I can only answer the question if you turn it into a complete thought by filling in the blank and saying, is the lamp to the left of blank? Uh, uh, the, the chest of drawers. Now I can answer it. Uh, is the lamp to the left of uh, the kitchen table? Is the lamp to the left of is not even a complete thought. So the right to choose is just like, is the lamp to the left of? It is not a complete thought. You have to say, is there a right to choose X? And once you fill in X, you can answer the question. So if X is, when I get frustrated, I can drive my car through my neighbor's front window. The answer is no, you don't have a right to choose that. If the X is torture my my neighbor's little dog because I just don't like dogs. No. If it's buy any car I can afford, yeah. Whether you have that right or not depends upon, as Aristotle would say, the more fundamental important question as to what you put in the blank. So that means that the question, do I have a right to choose an abortion? depends on what an abortion is. And that's the fundamental question related to Stan's question, what is in there? <laughs> what is it? So that, I mean, it's just any thinking person that is fair-minded would, would, would understand that what I'm saying is right about that. And so that's why that's fundamental. Mm -hmm. So I think where this topic can get confusing in an ethical sense is when there is a question of the priority of life. So say the mother's life is at risk. We'll give me as an example. So both of my children, I had a disease called hyperemesis gravidium with them. It very often will end the life of the mother and the child in developing and underdeveloped countries because it causes severe dehydration and uh, really can be a, a very serious disease very quickly. And I had a milder form of the disease, but I have friends who spent millions of dollars keeping themselves and their child alive in order to reach an age of viability and be able to deliver that child safely. So in this debate, sometimes the question is, well, in order to save the life of the mother, what should we do? Where is the value of life to be placed? How, how do you respond to those kind of arguments? Well, I uh, am very sensitive to that reality and having traveled extensively uh, globally of uh, known folks who've really had some of those severe cases that they've had to face. Having said that, it is a very rare occurrence. And so what one never wants to do is make an ethical policy or take an ethical position based on the exception. So one could be very 
justified in granting that in those very few cases, uh, the life of the mother would have to be prized over the life of the baby while still being a person who does not agree with the morality of abortion. I think that's very consistent. It ties into a view in ethics called graded absolutism, which acknowledges that sometimes there are true moral conflicts where there are two things that are contradictory that both seem to be right, namely preserve the life of the mother and preserve the life of the baby. And you have to choose it sometimes. And the classic example is the Nazi comes to your door and mm -hmm. you're hiding Jews in the attic. And he says, you got any, any Jews in the attic? And you say, no, well, you've lied, but it's for a greater purpose uh, to preserve life. So those cases do exist. They're very rare. And I don't think they're relevant to this discussion because they are so rare that they really can't form our moral reasoning and justification for our position. JP, would you add to that some, probably fill it out? I think you're so spot on. I, I agree. I think that the reason that if, if there really is a genuine threat to the mother's life, it may well be justifiable, not obligatory, but justifiable for the woman uh, not to be morally required to, as it were, commit suicide. But the reason that that's true is because of a pro-life view of a recognition of the sacredness of life, along with the idea that the mother has a right, not an obligation, but a right to value her ongoing life over her babies in those very narrow cases. But 99.999% of these cases are not that, and an abortion is not a way of respecting the right to life like is being done in those rare cases, but it's actually contrary to the sanctity of life. And I think that's an important additional distinction between the two cases, even though one is extremely rare and the rest are ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. Yes, organizations like the uh, Guttmacher Institute, that um, they are a, a deeply pro-choice institute that does a lot of research, but they would, they would say that 95% of the abortions that take place take place because of an unwanted pregnancy. So we are, we're, we've kind of narrowed our scope there even more. We've taken that, that 5% off the table and now we're, we're talking about elective abortions of unwanted pregnancies. Sometimes the argument becomes a question of when. When is this a person? Uh, is it a person at the moment of conception or, or um, the sort of antiquated idea of quickening? What does philosophy have to say about the when question? Well, I'm going to let Stan answer that. But note that by raising that question, you are making the fundamental issue the fundamental issue. Mm -hmm. Because the, 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 the real question isn't, do I find this pregnancy convenient? Or is this a desired thing? Good Lord. I mean, if, if we all did what we wanted to do, instead of asking what's the right thing to do, the place would be chaotic. Uh, nobody'd have a life. And by the way, women women better watch out for that one, 
Because if we go the way China goes, uh, girls can be aborted, but boys can't, at least as the firstborn. Mm -hmm. Because having a girl, especially at the, as a firstborn child, is an unwanted, undesirable pregnancy. So it's legitimate to abort a girl, but not so with a boy. So, you know, I mean, uh, this, this, this gets pretty weird quickly. Mm -hmm. Stan, yeah, I'm sorry, you go ahead. No, that's really good. Uh, I think... I'd want to clarify a distinction. And the distinction is there are really only two ways to define what a person is. One would be a functional definition, and the other would be a non-functional definition uh, or an ontological definition. I'll get to that. So functional definition basically says to be a person is to have certain abilities or functions. And there's debate about which of those are the ones to choose. You know, long ago, it was quickening, feeling movement in the womb, right? Now it's more debate of maybe implantation, um, organized brain waves, sentience, viability, as you mentioned earlier, able to live outside the womb. Uh, these are all functional definitions of what a person is. And of course, some go further who advance infanticide is morally appropriate. And they talk about functions that children don't develop until one or two years of age. But the point is that, that there is one way to define what a person is, and that's by their function, what they can do or can't do. Uh, the other is ontologically or non-functionally, uh, defining it in terms of what it is in its essence, whether or not it's at a point of being able to express those abilities or, or function in those ways. You know, an embryo, uh, uh, a very early developing child in the womb cannot express its emotions, but still will be able to do so. It's a it's a function that it will be able to express. It just can't express it right now. And so really the debate ought to be about which of those two definitions of personhood are best. And uh, there's a lot can be said, uh, I think, in favor of an ontological definition over a functional definition. For instance... If we wanted to find persons functionally, then most of us aren't persons for most of our life because there's only a very small window of time when we really are uh, in our in our in our sweet spot, right? We're either developing as youth or we're on the downhill side of the curve. <laughs> you know, it's it's a slippery slope to start defining personhood by functionality, mm. uh, but that's usually where the conversation is, and then debate what function actually is the right one. And if you do that, we're not all equally persons. Exactly. Because there's more or less functionality. And so being a person turns out like being cloudy. Uh, it's degreed. Uh, is the sky cloudy? Well, yeah, but how, how cloudy? 20%, 40, 80? Uh, well, person, well, what degree of personhood do they have? Are they 80% person, 20 so, you know, you go into a classroom and uh, my university during finals week, none of the freshmen would count as persons. I mean, you know, <laughs> so, uh, so you get the point. Mm -hmm. Equal rights are extremely hard, if not impossible, to justify on a degreed concept of functionality. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this, again, underlies so many other debates in our and the, the world's history it underlies the underlied the debate over slavery yeah, because uh, slaves were defined to not have the functional capacities and other abilities that made them actually fully persons and therefore could be treated as property and done with according to the slave owner's whims because they were like the uh, drone on my on my uh, roof they were 
inanimate objects without mm-hmm. intrinsic value and really existed for the pleasure of the owner. And, uh, you know, totalitarian regimes around the world still argue that line to dehumanize people that they deem less than adequate. And in fact, uh, you know, that's often grounded in not having certain functional quote unquote abilities that the the ruling class or the, or the real people have. My own view, and I think Stan would probably hold this, is that you have a human person there if you have evidence that whatever's in there is a living being on its own. So for example, an organ is living, a heart is a living heart in that it is a constituent of a whole, uh, we might say a, a specific dog or a specific human person. And so it's not an organism on its own, it's a part of another organism. So if we have evidence that whatever's in in the womb is not a part of the mother's body, but is actually its own independent living being, then if you hold like I do, and like I think Sam does, that it is really the soul that gives life or animates something, and I've defended this, and so Stan, it's not just a pure ball-faced assumption. Mm-hmm. Then life begins at conception because the scientific evidence is beyond. This is now a scientific question as to when when do you have an independent human unit, and the evidence is that that takes place at conception. Granted, in a science of DNA, right? That there's separate DNA from the moment of conception. Yeah, and the functioning of the cell, of the, of the fertilized cell, now functions and grows for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Now, some people will say, but wait a minute, up until a certain 14 days or, uh, or whatever, um, it's just a cluster of cells because it can split and form two different children. Now, that is actually false. And this was shown to be false by the by the medieval philosophers before we ever had modern technology. The assumption is that if you have something that can split to form two different organisms, it is not itself an organism, but just a cluster of cells that we don't know how many organisms we're going to be able to get out of it. But they were they recalled in the ancient world that there was a form of reproduction, a sexual reproduction that took place in many cases. If a part of a living organism were cut off of it, it would grow another example of that organism. So the starfish was the classic example. Yeah. You have a starfish and there's no doubt that this is one whole unit. It's a living organism in its own right. It's not a bunch of cells. It's a living thing. But you can take a part of a starfish off, and if you put it in the right environment, like water and so on, it'll grow into a new starfish. So the fact that you can split something and it can form uh, an an additional uh, living member of, of the kind of thing it is, does not provide evidence that it isn't already a whole living member of that kind. And uh, in cloning, you can take apart a cell from a, a body, and if you do certain things to it, you can clone another human being or another sheep or what have you. 
But good Lord, does that mean that what you took that cell from wasn't already a full? So the argument's just, it's really, it's really bad. Yeah. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsor. Guests on the College Faith Podcast often discuss how important professors are in the lives of students during these impressionable years. Christian professors are examples to both non-Christian and Christian students that a person can be educated and still follow Christ, and they can have a lifelong influence as mentors. Please consider helping equip Christian professors to make a difference on a campus near you and worldwide. To learn more, please visit www.global-scholars.org. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to thinking Christianly. I would give a counterexample here of ectopic pregnancy. So that is a pregnancy that instead of implanting in the uterus, implants in the fallopian tube. So for a time, that embryo will thrive because there will be enough resources to sustain the life of that embryo. And it actually can thrive for longer than we would imagine would be possible. However, that is not considered a, quote, viable pregnancy because there's currently no way scientifically, medically, biologically to take that embryo and implant that embryo into the uterus after implantation in the fallopian tube. So we tend to consider a, quote, abortion or ending the life of that embryo in the fallopian tube as a is a good thing as something that can be done morally. Well, let's let's not confuse categories here. Let's not confuse the discussion of whether something is a human person, especially in light of the fact that it might be able to split and form other human persons. So that's the question of the ontology of what this is versus the question of whether it is viable in that it will be able to be brought to term and continue to grow to an adult of whatever it is. And I would say that in ectopic pregnancies, you have a living human person. Uh, That's the ontological question. But in the current state of medical science, and, and given the limited nourishment that it has, if there's no way to remove that baby and put it in a place where it gets artificial nutrition until it's able to survive on its own, then, then that's a very different question. My preference, uh, moral preference, if that's true, would be to allow the child to die rather than taking its life, unless doing so provides a significant risk to the mother's life. Now, by significant, I don't mean 5%. But, and I don't know where to draw that line. Mm-hmm. But it would be an objective, reasonable person would say, 
that is a genuine risk to this, this woman's life. This illustrates, I think, the challenge of this conversation because it almost always and quickly goes to the exception. And the assumption often is, this isn't yours, Jordan, I know, but often is, well, if there is a strong argument for the exception, then it justifies the, uh, the, the normal course of affairs also. And that simply isn't the case. So right. I'm interested in, in the normal course of development in the uterus, when is the procedure of abortion morally appropriate and not even granting all of the exceptions let's talk about the 95 plus percent of the cases which is really what we want a moral a set of moral principles to help guide us in as an individuals and as a culture right i do want to also mention two other things that i think are important to think about in terms of when is this thing a person and one is there's a clear developmental pathway that Again, 99% of the time, embryos go through, through the gestational process and through birth. And it is arbitrary and artificial to, at some point, say, okay, at this point of that process, it's not a person. But the next day in the process, it is a person. In other words, there has to be a, a rational grounding to where that line ought to be drawn. And I so far, haven't seen any rational grounding from the moment of conception through birth and infancy and on into adulthood to draw that line and say, okay, it's not a person at this point, but it is a person in this point. Great point. Second point is even if take everything we've said and set it aside, even if we have no idea when this thing becomes a person, we should be very careful because we don't know. There's a parallel moral principle that hunters apply. If you see movement in the bush and you don't know what it is, you do not shoot. It could be a deer, but it might be a person. And because you don't know what it is, you don't shoot. Mm -hmm. So the very fact that we don't know what this thing is, I think we do, but to make the strongest case for not knowing, even if that case is made, we ought not abort because it might be a life. Mm -hmm. And I don't hear that conversation come up often. And that bothers me. Great points. Great points. Well, um, I, I published an article, a little small article on my website and also on the Talbot website. It, it was on a woman's right to her body. And you hear this argument, well, the woman has a right to her own body. And so what philosophers do is what most people take for granted, they say, wait a minute, let me think about this. And I, I don't think a woman does have a right to her body. Uh, let me explain why. Uh, there are two senses in which the body is a woman's. In one sense, it's true, but morally irrelevant. In another sense, it's morally relevant, but false, that it's her body. How is the body a woman's? Answer, it's the body that she indwells. Uh, I indwell a particular body, and my indwelling this body makes it mine in the sense that it's the one that I indwell and, and interact with the world through. Okay, that's one sense. But um, St. Augustine had to argue against a, a group in his day that believed in rational suicide, that 
is they thought suicide was wrong if it was done in the heat of the moment. Uh, but if you thought it through and carefully understood what you want that you were doing this and 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 didn't want to get old, then it could it would be morally okay. And Augustine said, no. And the reason it's not okay, even in those cases, is because that body is not yours. It belongs to God. Now, Locke, later on, John Locke said that something becomes mine in the important sense of owning it and having the right to do with it as I please. If I have mixed my labor and sweat in making it or inherited, but I'm not going to worry about inheritance right now. Now, if you think about that, then the body belongs to God because he's the one who created and made it. The woman is like a renter. You're supposed to have a friend that's uh, got, uh, worked hard and made up enough money to buy an apartment complex and, and people rent apartments. They don't have a right to do anything they want to those apartments. There are limits to what they can do. Even though they indwell the apartment, they don't own it. They didn't mix their sweat and labor and toil with it. It is, it is the landlord that owns the apartment and it's because he labored to get it. He has the right to set the rules as to what you can do in that department and what you can't do. Just because somebody lives in it doesn't mean that they have that right. Now, a woman is a, is a renter. They indwell a body, but they're renting. God is the owner. And so that raises the question then, is there a God? That question is the ultimate one, because if there isn't, it would be a really interesting thing to ask a pro-choice advocate, from whence do you get your, your moral views? How could there be such a thing? as morality in a, in a universe that began with a bunch of particles. But that's a separate question. I'll summarize a woman's right to her own body is misguided because it's amb ambiguous between two different senses in which it's her body. The ownership sense, which is important, but it's not hers in that sense. The indwelling sense, which is it, is hers, but that doesn't give her a right to do with her apartment or her body anything she wants. Mm. Well, you seem like you're not liking this, Jordan. Mm. Oh, I'm just, I'm thinking. Um, I'm thinking about what, what someone would say, and possibly they would come back with the argument, well, is that woman not mixing her toil in pregnancy to bring about the life of the child? Well, I mean, that would be like saying, hey, look, wait a minute. I've got some new furniture in this apartment and I've worked my rear end off on sanding and polishing it. And and in fact, it's taken me nine stinking months to get this furniture so it looks good in the apartment and people can sit in it. Well, that's noble, but that doesn't mean they have a right to do with the apartment anything they want to do. And as long as they live in the apartment and it belongs to somebody else, their rights are limited. Mm. So I don't care whether she mixed her labor, she did not create her own body and she was not at least the, the sole creator. She may have been a co-laboring creator of the baby, 
But this is a question of a woman's right to do with her body what she wants. Now, if you're asking, does she have a right to do with the baby in her body whatever she wants? That's the question we began this series with, this this session with. Mm -hmm. And that's a good separate question. Uh, But we're we're addressing the question of, does the woman have a right to do with her body whatever she wants? That's the question I'm addressing. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep, I think that answers that question. Thank you. And it's an it's an interesting question to ask, especially in the case of say there is something that happens in a woman's body that was not that was not desired, perhaps rape or incest that often ends up in this conversation. That's that's where at least legally often exceptions are made. How would you answer questions about that, or or where would that fit into our argument. I would say, could we just move away from the abortion question for just a second? And I would say in general in life, if something has happened to people that is not good or that they didn't want to happen, and there's an innocent person over here that had nothing to do with it, is it okay to punish that person by you know, doing something to their home or putting them in jail? And the answer is, well, of course not. They're, they're just innocent bystanders. They didn't know anything about it. They lived across town. So in general, we don't punish innocent people for something bad that happened to us. <laughs> what the heck? Mm-hmm. That's absurd. Now, now in the abortion case, a rape case, that's horrible. I, look, look, we're talking about this at the level of ideas and we're, we're limited. I'm not trying to work with a person mm-hmm. in which case I would lead with just incredible empathy because mm-hmm. it would be a horrible thing to have to carry a child that you that was implanted by rape. OK, but I'm just sticking with the with the with the ideas here. Mm-hmm. And the point is that what sense does it make? They killed the baby who was innocent. They didn't have anything to do with, with the rape. And I can't understand why it makes sense to kill if what's in that womb is a human person, what sense it makes to kill an innocent human person who didn't do a darn thing. I just don't get it. Now, this the situation is emotion on every level, morally horrible. There's no doubt about that, but I'm just trying to answer the specific question. And Stan Mm -hmm. may have a different view on that, but I'm not making a rhetorical uh, point here. No, Mm -hmm. I I, I agree. Um, Again, back to two points we keep making. This is the exception. And Mm -hmm. I think it's often raised as uh, the issue so that with the emotional force of it, and it's a huge issue emotionally for all of us, horrible situation. But because of that, sometimes we will then suspend the rational deliberation and uh, and and then make the exception to the rule. Well, they're okay. Okay, abortion must be must be permissible, or else we would uh, put women in this horrible situation. So I. I against exception i'd rather set exceptions aside till we get a moral mm-hmm. principle and then we can deal with exceptions um as uh, as emotional hor- and horrible as that is uh but also it's another domino that that falls when when one decides that the uh the baby is a fetus that this mm-hmm. is not a person well then uh it's a no-brainer 
but if it is a person, then it raises all the questions that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Why would you take the life of an innocent person for the, for the, for the sake of another when the, the, the person is not guilty? Now, for me, this gets really personal. And I'll just, I'll just be honest. My, um, my birth mother was raped. And she made that hard choice of bringing her little boy to, to fruition and letting him be born. And uh, I actually just met her about four years ago uh, and I was able to thank her personally for that excruciating choice she made because I've been the recipient of her love and grace, though, had never met her and she had never met me until just recently. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, as somebody who's been through it, uh, at least on one end of it, it, it's hard to think about why why I, I, sh- I should have been executed uh, for something that had nothing to do with me at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, my uh, mother uh, uh, did so a couple of years before me. I've got an older sister I found as well. So there are two of us who've been uh, reunited with her and with one another, which is was a joyful occasion actually. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a pretty it's a pretty personal question and issue. What a story. Mm-hmm. Boy, thanks, Dan, for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I close our time together, are there any further thoughts we'd like to add? Well, I'll tell a story. A friend of ours, Frank Beckwith, uh, who's a pro-life professor, was on a secular talk radio show, and he gave a case for pro-life, and they had call-ins from the listeners. A woman called in and said, what right do you have to be talking about this? Because you're a male. Mm-hmm. You, you have no right because you you're not a female. And our, our professor friend said, you know what? I am so frustrated right now because when I got to around fifth grade, I, I underwent a change and I developed a real low gruff voice. And I I was a little girl and I got teased and excluded from being invited to parties because I sounded like a boy. And all my life, people have said, well, man, your voice sounds like a man's voice. And I am not a man. Uh, my name is Francis Beckwith, and I'm, I'm a woman. Uh, but I know I sound like a man. Now, let me ask you, since you know that I'm a woman now, do you agree with all the arguments I made for pro-life? And she said, no, I don't. And he said, well, I guess that proves that arguments don't have penises. <laughs> and uh, so the, 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 the bottom line was that if you give an argument and Stan and I are two white males here and somebody watching says, I don't buy that. They're two white guys, two white males. My question is, if two women re- read the transcript of what we said, and they came on and they gave the exact same arguments we gave, would you change views? If the answer is no, then the, then the white male thing doesn't matter. Mm, that is an excellent point. Yeah. Well, I'll close with a thought too, to, to um, compliment that. I, I, I agree. And uh, that's a great story about Frank. Um, you know, we look at other cultures of past centuries that practiced child sacrifice, which was very common. And we uh, are morally uh, disgusted by that. And again, going to the thing we open with, if this is a person, again, the ontology, if this is actually a baby, 
that abortion is really modern-day child sacrifice on the altar of personal goals and desires. I want a career. I want to wait for uh, more financial stability. Whatever it is, let's just call it what it is. And if we want to be a culture that engages in child sacrifice, like other cultures did in the past, that was part of who they were, we can do that. But let's just be honest about what we're doing. Amen. If, in fact, this is a person. Now, if it's not a person, in the case be made that it's a potential person or whatever else, obviously, that doesn't follow. But uh, if, if, if that's the right ontology, and I'm pretty sure it is, then that's, that's where we are these days. Well, thank you both. And I want to remind the listeners kind of what we said at the beginning, which is that we were looking at this topic in a morally relevant sense from the standpoint of moral philosophy. And if you have comments or questions about things that we've said, please reach out to us. You will find a place to do that in the show notes. And I also want to close by just reminding all of us as human beings made in the image of God, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you all. Thank you. Appreciate it. Excellent job, guys. This was a good one. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith, seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org podcasts where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.